so look, I mean, I think what is important to understand is that this infrastructure, you know, in these DLT-based environments and this philosophy of, of a smart financial contract living in these DLT-based environments, I am convinced that whoever gets this right for the first time in 220 years can build a meaningful capital market without Anglo-Saxons. to Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel, where we explore projects in decentralized finance that are innovating and driving our mission of financial freedom forward. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review Mission DeFi and spread the word by posting a tweet to the show. All opinions expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests are their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Black Knox, Material Indicators, or any other affiliated organizations. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests as an inducement to make a particular investment, follow a particular strategy, or become involved with any project. A project being featured on the show is not an endorsement of that project in any way. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Now, here's Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel. All right, I am excited today to have Ralph Kubli, who is a board member of the Casper Association. Uh, and the Casper Association is the organization behind a, a new blockchain called Casper, appropriately enough. And uh, Ralph and I have been uh, spending a little bit of time talking about, we have some very similar uh, historical backgrounds. So uh, Ralph, first of all, before we get started into kind of what Casper is and why it's what it exists, if you wouldn't mind kind of telling us a little bit about your background, um, how you got into crypto, but also uh, your background in the technology arena uh, prior to that, that would be great. great welcome. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Exciting to be here. Uh, yeah. So in the early 90s and mid 90s, um, I was in grad school and I had a little bit of time on my hands because I was a um, history major and, you know, it's not as intense as all our, I would say, schools. And so uh, a couple of friends started coding HTML, uh, you know, at the university. And I remember, so, so actually... I got my first email in 1993 and you had to fill out the piece of paper, you know, and request that you could, you could still actually pick your name. You could, you could ah. pick your own name at the time, which was right. a crazy thought. And, uh, you know, and we were starting out browsing text-based browsers. And then, uh, as we discussed before, I remember downloading mosaic, uh, and then of course coding HTML. For about two and a half years, I was maintaining, creating and maintaining websites with some friends of mine. And, you know, it was then in 1995 when a, a relative of mine said, hey, you know, you should stop going to school now <laughs> and go to the U.S. I, I grew up in Switzerland, right? Go right. to the U.S. and learn everything about the web because it's the future. Nice. Nice. When yeah. you first, sorry, real quickly, when you first um, encountered the, the first web browser you used, you said it was Mosaic. Was that a moment for you of aha or was it, oh, this is just improves on what I was already doing because you were so early. Like, I mean, 
you know, you were pre that, that user interface that we all kind of got used to it from like 95, 96 on, you were doing things, I guess, like Gopher um, and those kinds of interfaces. Um, was it for you just a transition? Oh, this is an improvement, an upgrade, or was it like, oh, wait, this really changes things? I don't think I really understood the impact, you know, it would have, right? So right. it was just another version of accessing it was just another version of accessing the same resources. But of course, when we started building websites and we pushed the limits, you know, of, of what was possible then uh, with a fairly small group of people that was kind of like cutting edge, that was really interesting. And you could feel that, that it was, it was qualitatively different than of course, what we had done before. Um, you know, the. I should have listened to my relative more closely because he was selling, he was selling uh, mainframe computers, right? He, oh, was, wow. he was, he was high up in a mainframe manufacturer and, and, uh, he basically said, listen, you know, this is the future and yeah, you should really pursue it. And, and you didn't, I didn't. Yeah. I stopped, wow. I stopped coding HTML in 97 uh, for, for reasons I still do not understand, <laughs> but but it's the reason why I'm in crypto today, right? Because in 2015, 16, when I came across, uh, you know, these Ethereum and, and, and some of these environments, I realized that I am given a second chance in life to be part nice. of a equally, you know, um, momentous and, and relevant uh, technological innovation, right? Which is why I'm in this business today. I mean, which is why I'm in this industry because it, it, it is the natural development from what we've experienced at that time, but with a much more powerful ethic and, and, and of course, technology behind it. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. What, um, what, what kind of a career were you in, in between, uh, stopping your HTML coding and, uh, moving into crypto? Yeah, I was in large firms, uh, in large companies. Funny enough, the very first job I had for a few years in the beginning was to build e-commerce platforms, right? So right. I, mean, I, I, I stopped in 97. I didn't follow the advice, uh, you know, of my, of my relative. And then I, I ended up, um, the very first job I had, it was, you know, I was responsible for. I was representing a marketing department in the e-commerce, you know, efforts of a company. We were very early there as well. One of the, one of the, sure. guys, the people that I worked for, he was really pushing it. And, um, and, but I remember those meetings as probably some of your listeners as well, you know, they were like Qualcomm would come in and they, they had all these large companies that would offer million dollar, you know, platforms or multi-million dollar projects. And of course, you know, the infrastructure was nowhere close of being ready to, you know, to have a spare parts business. I mean, I was an industrial company, sure. spare parts business or other business on, you know, on the web, it was impossible, right? But so that's what I did for, and then I, I did the general management career and I worked in large companies and, and, um, and then in 2015, yeah, I came across at some point I left large firms and then I, I worked for an AI startup and, and then in 2015, 16, I really came across, I think that the seminal, the seminal or the, you know, the key recognition was I, I read an article, which I recommend and maybe we can post it in your, in, sure. in your uh, thing. I read an article by 
by four economists, by three economists, which actually were quite well known. They're still known today in the space. Uh, one, of, one of them was um, uh, Primavera de Filippi, which, which is somewhat known, right, in the space. Yep. She, she was at the Berkman Klein Center and Harvard. And anyway, so, so these three economists were basically laying out that blockchain is not just a technology, but it's basically a um, channel for economic activity, right? And the platform for economic activity and it competes with institutions of capitalism and and what are institutions of capitalism markets firms and the government right and now you have right. a fourth you have a fourth element here in the world and that's that really that got me totally excited nice. uh, and and i made the determination to really join the space however i could that's fantastic um it, it's funny when you were real quickly when you were referencing um wishing you had taken your relative's advice. I stayed in, in web, but I went the startup route and, you know, look, I arguably made a good amount of money for my age at the time, which was great. Got acquired, went public, all that good stuff. But I'm convinced to this day that if I had just stayed in building web pages, I would have made so much more money mm. <laughs> because of how much people were charging for websites at that time. I mean, you, you talk about a price drop. It is astounding. Like it, yeah. it's um, a dramatic difference. That's um, what, so the article itself was focused upon kind of how I assume it sounds like it was because I, I, I don't think I've read this, but it, it sounds like it was really focused upon kind of how it changes the infrastructure of, of finance and how it changes um, and opens up more um, access to to finance. What was that kind of the calling card for you that that for you, it was this not only kind of rebellious or revolutionary kind of thing, but that it, it really opened the door to more people. What was kind of the appeal for you? Uh, no, the appeal was really a combination of the idea that you would have the ability to build completely new, not completely new, but you know, you'd have an additional component that would enable economic activity. Right. Right. And, and of course, trust, you know this idea of of bitcoin and and ethereum you know large public networks as a trust layer right as really as producing trust between uh, individuals and parties that otherwise could not trust each other that's an extremely powerful idea right because right. all economic activity you know relies on trust right and right. and and in some countries that cost of trust is really high Right. Sure. So when you think about emerging economies or, you know, um, where you have weak institutions, the cost of trust is really high, which means that the level of economic activity gets smaller because you have to spend so much money. Uh, right. So in the U.S., we spend a lot of money on lawyers. <laughs> right. So. So, but, but, you know, in China or in Africa, you spend money on security firms and, you know, family relationships and decades of decades of, you know, business relationships that enable you at some point to, you know, to transact with other right. parties. Right. So right. that's all, that's all cost. And suddenly sure. you now have a, you have, a, you have this thing called a blockchain where you can produce trust, you know, out of thin air immediate. And that's amazing. Love that. Uh, and I think that is absolutely, um, I, I think it's some, one of the most empowering things about this is that it does, it eliminates the need for, I've never heard it phrased quite that way, but you're right. 
we spend a fortune in time and money trying to figure out the best ways to um, either have trust or at least have rails around it enough exactly. to, yeah. to, to allow us to say, okay, I'll trust this for now. Um, and um, it eliminates so much of that, which is obviously that's, that's a very appealing thing. And that's really cool that that is what caught your eye is that that's what really, uh, I mean, having that realization, I don't think a lot of people even think about those things. So kind of having that hit you is, uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so that'll be really excited. And when you think about when you think about what this means for <clears throat> economies, and you know, many times people say, "Well, you know, blockchain is a solution in search of a problem." I mean, I just described a really, really large problem, right? Correct. Right. So, so, so I don't think the technology is in search of a problem. We are all in search of some killer applications and we need to start well you remember we started out in the web two space with extremely narrow applications so we need to we, we as an industry need to find you know this narrow application and you know build tech businesses as they have been built you know for the last 60 years sure and you start with a small application and you grow from there and and it's a bit challenging because we are dependent on very complex application environments but uh, but yeah so this cost of trust reduction really caught my eye and 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 i think it's exciting then what this means today is you know you can cryptographically secure ownership right digital ownership you couldn't do that you know before the advent of this technology right um right i mean nfts are an expression thereof but i'm not just thinking of jpegs you know it could also be a piece of code Right. You know, can be can be a can be a, a formula for a molecule, right? The chemical could be you know could could be biotech engineering where you can as an inventor and as a creator can really prove ownership and uh, can enable afterwards um, you, you know monetization of that technology and of your invention in a way that was previously just impossible. It's true. It's funny you you said that about. Um... Uh, is that, that we are a technology in search of a problem is what people say. Um, one of the things, you know, I, here in the U.S. is we're having these discussions about the regulatory structure here and the problems we're having in the United States in this industry. I, I, I say this to repeatedly, and I've had a lot of discussions with people who are raising money for lobbying and campaigning here in the United States to try to change our positioning. But for over a couple of years now, one of my primary points has been that we are completely missing the boat in how we frame what we bring to the table. And, and just in general terms, if you applied crypto and blockchain to the existing financial system, you not only eliminate the need to trust in a lot of ways, you eliminate the potential for a lot of fraud that has occurred um, and things like the mortgage crisis and other things that happen in the, uh, around the world. Um, but you also eliminate huge amounts of cost, right? All of those things you were talking about earlier about the, the infrastructure we build for trust, all of the infrastructure we build in this United States or financial systems worldwide for settling transactions and making sure things are being done correctly, you, you eliminate all of those things. Now, yes. it's not a panacea. It's not going to solve every problem. But uh, one, of, one of the arguments I often make is, is that we, we keep sitting back in the United States begging not to be regulated and trying to figure out where to be put ourselves when in fact we can be a proactive solution 
to the problems that exist in the financial yeah. system. And yeah. so, so for me, it's very frustrating. Um, but you know, that's uh, that's, yeah. how, that's how things roll here. Look, I think I think, and and I know you have a fair amount of traders in your you know among your audience and um, and institutional investors. I think it's important to understand um, that that we need to separate the technology from the asset class, right? So, right. and I think the regulators misunderstand that to a certain extent. Uh, in the U.S., certainly, it doesn't appear. Just it it appears completely irrational at, at times, right? So, right. Um, but in Europe, uh, let's just face it, right? It, it's the same problem in Europe, and you know, forget about Asia. But, but look, I mean, you have to separate the asset class, and maybe I'll speak quickly about the asset class, and then I, I sure. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how I see the finance infrastructure develop. But so, when you think about the asset class, people sometimes ask, you know, in conversations. Why, why is anything, why is this worth anything, right? Because it's created out, out of thin air. Well, these technologies, these, these cryptocurrencies are worth something because we have an expectation that in the future, certain economic activities will occur on these networks, right? right. This is what I just laid out, right? The solution right. to trust is, is a, you know, is, is huge, right? The, 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 the problem we're solving is very large. So that means, at some point, someone will figure out how to use this infrastructure. Hopefully, you know, with a with a similar event like an iPhone moment, right? We're still working, we're waiting for the iPhone moment, but or the App Store moment, or, uh, App Store moment. Sorry, not the App Store, but the App Store moment, the iPhone moment. Sure. So, at some point, someone will figure out to use this infrastructure and really create massive amounts of economic value for certain and with certain applications that's why this asset class has value right that's Absolutely. why we ascribe value to the asset class and some people think that you know bitcoin is going to be the reserve currency and the trust anchor for everything that's great you can believe that or not it doesn't matter right uh same for ethereum which has a little bit different functionality and then there's all these altcoins that you know that that some people building i mean including our project but you know that's what we're building for right we're building infrastructure for for future economic activity to happen and then what you've mentioned the other part is how will this really impact the infrastructure of the financial um you know of of, of the financial system overall and i would argue as you argue as well it's going to be quite profound and significant right right um, absolutely because you know the to a token is the ideal collateral you know in a blockchain environment or dlt environment the trade is the settlement i i mean although you know just when you think about it in those terms i mean which is why i'm saying um when i speak to audiences that are very skeptical i say look blockchain is the single most important technology in finance since the introduction of computers in banks nice and what but what it should be not mistaken is you know finance is not payments the 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 problem that i think we have in the conversation is that the broader public even and even you know fintech experts mistake you know the nice shiny applications that we have uh, been delivered uh, by centralized organizations over the last five no, whatever 15 years 
you know, mostly focus around payments, right? The innovation right. is extremely limited and, you know, efficiency is very limited in payments. And I would even venture to say, even some people may, may disagree with that here, payments is largely solved. The fact that we pay a lot of money for cross-border, um, you know, money transfers has probably more to do with the fact that these infrastructures are owned and controlled by private equity firms than with the technological capabilities. Right, right, right. absolutely. But payments is not finance, right? Finance is the exchange of cash over time, right? I give right. you money today and you give me money back, whatever we agree, that's finance. And that is slightly more complex to solve, you know, in a decentralized environment than a payment, right? Right, absolutely, absolutely. So look, I mean, I think what is important to understand is that this infrastructure, you know, in these DLT-based environments and this philosophy of, of a smart financial contract living in these DLT-based environments, I am convinced that whoever gets this right for the first time in 220 years can build a meaningful capital market without Anglo-Saxons. And when I'm in Europe, I say to the Europeans, when I'm in the US, of course, and it, but it's true, it's not going to rival. I mean, it's not going to compete. No, it's not going to replace or, you know, dramatically impact. Um, no, actually, that's wrong. It will dramatically impact the existing, you know, locations. It will not replace them. That's not possible. It's not possible. But, um, no, but, but you that's know, re that's realizing un that's tapping. Uh, untapped potential, right? And that's, yeah, the that's French, empowering. I'm telling you, the French and the Germans understand it very well, right? They do nice. not, the French and the Germans, they do not want to continue paying thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars per hour to lawyers that just securitize something that should be done automatically. It's of just, course. They're, they're done, you know, they're done doing that, right? So, well, and half the time they're, they're repurposing the thing they gave to the last client. Yes. You know, yes. I mean, that's, uh, I was going through that today with my partner. I was like, we're, you know, we already did this documentation. I paid for it previously. Well, let's get it how we want it. And then just, they can stamp of approval it because they've already written yeah. it. But, but they understand that very well, right? Those people that understand that very well. And we're working with these, with these investment banks that have, that have um, done a lot. And in a DVP, just so, I mean, I think that's for the next one when we talk about finance, but for these DVP environments, right? You need to understand if you don't understand what you're delivering, right? The payment is great, right? Tokenization, CBDCs, JP Morgan coin, commercial bank money, whatever. That really solves the counterparty risk in a, in a payment, in, you know, in a versus payment lag, right? In the right. payment lag. But if your security that you're delivering, if, if that contains cash flows, and you do not have that in a machine readable or machine executable form that is standardized, then you're gaining nothing. Then you just solved one problem, which is a big problem. I agree. Sure. And, and of course you already, I mean, in repo environments where you only, you know, post cash, like cash, like instruments, um, th that already is a big, you know, it's, it's already a big, you know, a, a big, a big efficiency gain. But as soon as you move away from the cash-like instruments and you move to cash, you know, to any kind of ABS, any kind of MBS, you know, CMBS, RMBS environments, instruments, it, we are back to 2008. If you don't have a more efficient way of understanding the cash flows that occur and occurred and will occur 
in this instrument, nobody nobody will switch to this new settlement environment because because the efficiency on the price discovery and the security on the D side, on the delivery side, is not given, right? That's really interesting. That's what we're building. And we have some traction. And hopefully in like three, four months, we I can already say we have we have people that are potentially, you know, life cycle managing tens of billions of dollars of assets. If we so so you you dove into headfirst into crypto. What was your path to getting to to where you are now? In 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 crypto or blockchain. Yeah. So yeah, that's good. So in 2015, I think really 16, I started to look at some of these, uh, you know, the literature. I was privileged to spend some time. Uh, I lived in New York at the time, and I connected with a group. Now I can't remember what the group was called. And we had like meetups. They had meetups in uh, in Brooklyn. Um, it was amazing. I mean, I think I I was probably one of the first few hundred that opened an Akasha account, if people still remember that. Sure. Um, I'm trying to remember, I have to, I have to write this down, otherwise, you know, for the OGs. Uh, <laughs> there was like Block Square, was it Block Square? You know, with the ID that was tied to your Twitter account? It'll come to me in a second. Um, I don't it, know. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, it'll come back. So it was great. It was great. It was really spirited debates between Bitcoin maximalists and Ethereum maximalists, you know, at these events. So that was really good. So, so that's what I, that's, that was my exposure. And then, and then I was very lucky to meet, um, some people in Switzerland when I was on vacation, actually, uh, when I visited that were starting a VC and, and they asked me to join and I nice. joined without, without a big, concept so we did we did early stage venture capital investments um for for seed seed startups in 2017 18 19 so that's how i got into crypto and then at some point i left the vc and i joined some of the you know some of the boards and 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 also did some op, you know work as a as an operator in some of these companies that that came through that's 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 incredible uh what a what a nice turn of events there that's excellent yeah, it was, it was great. And I mean, it was not foreseeable, but uh, Switzerland was very busy at the time, as you, as probably many people know, right? Everybody right. was the preferred setup. Everybody came. I mean, we had meetings. I mean, it was crazy, right? In the 17, 18. <laughs> I mean, you would just you get to the office and then there was people just stand on your door and they said, we want to see the crypto valley. We, would, we want to see the crypto valley. And, you know, where is it? And, you know, and we called. We called our offices the crypto, I uh, can't remember, the Crypto Valley, La crypto Valley uh, Labs. Yeah, CV Labs, the Crypto Valley Labs. And people just came, you know, Koreans, Japanese, you know. That's I, awesome. I, I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. It's a great way to get deal flow. <laughs> it was a, yeah, but you couldn't, I mean, yeah, but the deal flow was I'm going to revolutionize the world and eliminate all banks. And right. That, that's quite, that's quite difficult. Right? The same pitch over and over. Yeah, I get yes, it. Yes. Um, okay. So while we're in this t category, um, on your LinkedIn profile, uh, it, it says um, part of, part of your mission, I guess, is to help Switzerland maintain uh well you tell me what what the it's regulatory is. arbitrage uh, situation right so yeah. for a while look i think i think it was really interesting um and you know and the path to 
the path to innovation, also from a legislative point of view, was really interesting in Switzerland, um, steeped in Swiss traditions, you know, so there were a few people that said, hey, this is really awesome. And we missed the boat in 2000, uh, you know, in 2001. Right. Mind you, the web was developed in Switzerland, right? At CERN, right? So uh -huh, the web, sure. web, 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 web 2.0 was, 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 saw the light of the day of the world in, in Geneva at CERN. And, and there are zero, zero, uh, you know, unicorns in the web space in Switzerland. So there were some people that said, wow. we can't have this happen again. So they got together and pushed, uh, you know, PR and invited, you know, ministers and, you know, did all kinds of outreach and, and it kind of developed a really interesting dynamic. And, and what is of, what is of interest for the audience maybe to understand is that Switzerland, you know, in the financial services, quite frankly, is not very innovative, right? Because these bankers, they make a lot of money. They're not really bankers. They're private bankers. They're asset managers. This is not banking as we would understand it. Um, right. Some Swiss people that sit here may be upset or not, but I would say, <laughs> you know, this is not the same kind of banker you meet in New York or in London or even in Paris and Frankfurt, you know, and, and Hong Kong. It's a different, but there were some people that really wanted to build take this technology and 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 continue to build what they had started so in switzerland uh securities had been immaterialized for a long time actually already so and you know there were no stocks most of most securities that are issued in switzerland are not certificate what is called uncertificated securities so so then the that's the step from a entry in a banking system or on an excel sheet right i mean people keep track of shares you know in right. excel right and it's legal it's legal to do that in a list the the, the the step from that to a dlt based environment is not that far right right so it's that that's a fairly small step but of course many things had to be changed in order for example for an ownership change in a DLT environment to be law and to be actually lawful, right? And, right. Um, or transfer of ownership, excuse me. So transfer of ownership in a DLT based environment. And there were some people that really wanted to make it happen and they got together and they worked all kinds of lobby things. And, you know, and the finance minister at the time was very supportive. He retired just recently. So he really made that happen. So now Switzerland has a really forward-looking framework. Um, there are other hurdles in Switzerland for uh, for capital markets uh, issuance. It's fairly easy to issue. It's it's inconceivable for like your U.S. based audience to imagine that any in Switzerland, for example, any company can issue a bond. Wow! Any company can just issue debt. Right? Wow! So so you know as long as your company, you can issue debt. I mean, it's, amazing. The question is, who are you selling it to? You know, and and sure. you know how many people are you you know are you offering it to etc so that 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 of course is then a somewhat regulated activity depending on what you're doing but but you can still issue it so it's that's much kind of crazy. issue it. yeah 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 and of course many people understood the power of this of this technology right and and quite frankly so do now the germans and the and the french and the english to some extent um the uk um and and the U.S. is really falling behind if if they if 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 it continues to to make it difficult to engage in this environment, right? I mean, in yep. my opinion, a bond that lives in a DLT environment is still a bond, 
exactly it's not exactly it's not, you know it's still a bond so why yeah. why do you have to regulate it differently you don't it's the same thing no. it's a bond right so well look i think there are a couple of motivations in the united states um I think that uh, one of them is protecting the economic interests of the people who uh, are the private providers of the infrastructure that makes regulation happen. Yes. Um, I think there is a um, an, a bit of a control need and nanny uh, attitude on another side of the coin politically in this country yeah. that thinks they need to protect people from themselves. Um, and I think that's part of the problem as well. Um, and then I think, um, look, I think there's a, a real lack of curiosity. And and another big problem in the United States is, is a, a, at least earlier, um, a, a majority of the folks involved here had a very strong libertarian bent and to the point that they did not want to involve themselves in the yes. government in any way. And they thought that the blockchain would take yes. care of everything. And yeah. so obviously in hindsight, and well, even at the time, I thought it was foolish, but in hindsight, not the best strategy for uh, establishing a business. I mean, an industry, what's really fascinating to me is I think we all think back, just kind of think, oh, well, this, you know, Switzerland just got it and they just, they, no, they went I with their natural thing, right? There, But no, there was an entire force of humans who yes. said, we want to make this happen and they made it happen. And they made it happen before it was more difficult, right? Or threatening. Yes. Um, than it is now. And so uh, I think that's really, I think that's really important people to understand is, is that this was not something that just happened because the Swiss are just nice people. It happened because people wanted to make it happen and they worked yes. to make it yeah, happen in yeah, the system. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. But I think when you, when you look at, when you look at, um, but of course the DGENs have a point, right? I mean, you know, fiat is just fiat, right? And, sure. you know, and, and, and clearly, over the last decade or so, you know, we were all expropriated by central banks in one way or the other. Right. So, you know, the alternative, you know, of a Bitcoin is, is, is kind of like a sensible alternative. You know, if you, of course, believe that, you know, that the, the monopoly or the state power would relent at some point and make it, you know, and make it legal tender or something like this, right? So this is, it's not inconceivable. I mean, you know, the thought process is, is kind of like, okay. But when you look at the situation today and maybe we, 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 yeah, we bring it to today, right? I mean, you have, you have large asset managers like Franklin Templeton, like Fidelity, like, you know, the KKRs, um, you know, experiment with this technology. And why do they do that? Because, because it's more efficient, because it's, uh, you know, a, a token is the perfect collateral. And lastly, I mean, when you, when you listen to, um, I always forget her first name, uh, the, the CEO of Franklin Templeton, whose name is Johnson, just like the CEO of, of, of Frank, of Fidelity, whose name is Abigail Johnson, that I remember. <laughs> But, you know, they both make the point in, in, in some ways, but certainly Franklin Templeton publicly, you know, publicly, they say we need tokenization to access private markets for our clients. Right? We, will not right. have, we will not have enough product diversity and products because so much of the capital markets is going private. Um, you know, so... So that's why they're pushing this. That's why they're pushing this. And, and I think it's inevitable, you know, to take advantage of tokenization. I think large parts of the markets do it the wrong way, but, but, you know, tokenization of shares is relatively easy. 
yep. you mentioned that you, you mentioned the financial crisis afterwards. I would say that any financial instrument that is tokenized, certainly when cash flows are attached, which is a, a slightly different from a share, right? That is tokenized, right. a fund share or so. Um, but you know, any any financial instrument that has cash flows needs to have the logic of the cash flows in the token. And currently nobody is doing that really the, the right way. Uh, they are just producing, you know, they're putting term sheets in the form of a PDF inside the token and call it and call it the tokenized security, which it is, but it's a dumb tokenized security. It's Correct. very stupid. These are very stupid tokens. And and I don't think that they're, you know, the traders among you, they know that, you know, yeah, you can trade on technicals and, you know, and trends. But in the end, you want to understand what is inside this instrument. You need to have a mechanism of price discovery to understand whether it's overvalued or undervalued. And if you do not have that in a machine readable and machine executable form inside the token that is issued and that is representing the financial instrument and the underlying cash flows, uh, no one will use this infrastructure. That is my hypothesis. I, I, I think there's a big, a strong argument there. I, look, I think there's still advantages, even with dumb tokens, to having the mm -hmm. transparency of the network. But I yes. love the idea of of building in the intelligence into the token, which is completely possible with what we have available to us, to actually um, to actually understand what what it represents with the company or project that it represents ownership yes. in or cash flow from yeah, the cash flows, the cash flows, right? Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. look, the, the world runs on the world. I mean, it's always great to do equity investments, but let's face it, the world runs on credit. Sure. Absolutely. Right. The world runs on credit and, and we need to solve the credit problem. Uh, if we want to have, you know, growth, you know, grow, I mean, if we want to grow economies, you need to give credit, right? That's what the right. central banks tried to do and they didn't do it very well. Uh, because the credit gap for small and medium-sized companies persists, right? Since, of course. Since for a long time. So clearly that problem is not being solved. And I think with this logic and with the capabilities that you get by, by including the logic of these cash flows on a granular level into these, into these instruments in this, new, in this new settlement environment and trading capability, and collateralization capabilities that you have with ELTs, that that is really a step change. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Are you aware of, of any implementations of those kinds of ideas? Yeah, we do it. So, I mean, that's why I say it, right? But, I was wondering if I was gonna give you an opening to that transition. But it's a neutral, so. it's a neutral, we have a neutral position here where everything we build, um, uh, and actually that brings us to DeFi and TradFi, right? So, right. which before I go there, so, DeFi and TradFi are not that dissimilar. It's still finance. Sure. Right? It's still finance. And I would argue the difference between DeFi and TradFi is that in DeFi, the counterparty is very different and the counterparties are very different. It's, it's, it's a protocol. Uh, it may be decentralized or not, but it's still a protocol. I mean, it's most likely protocol. Um, but it's finance and what we do at Casper um, and what we encourage other chains to do, by the way, and, and, and uh, Cardano is building on the same open source algorithmic financial standard called Actus, algorithmic contract type unified standard. So we are building everything that we're building on this open source algorithmic standard, which allows, you know, everybody to use 
the same data model and the same algorithms to define deterministically define the cash flow obligations and the obligations of the parties on the exchange, whatever is being exchanged, right? You could you could theoretically also define a commodity, right, inside inside the such a contract. So, um, yeah, and we believe that is the way forward, and that also kind of resolves this difference between tradfi and defi because you know defi is still finance it's just in a different environment and with different counterparties sure that nah, makes total sense um is that kind of the origin of casper or how did casper come about why did casper come about yeah so thanks for the question so no casper was founded a bit more than four years ago um by two co-founders uh meta parlikar and Linal Manohar, who both had careers in corporations. I mean, Meta was in, in technology firms uh, and Marinal was an early open source contributor to a number of projects and then was in investment banking, uh, you know, in, in New York. And, and they were convinced that at the time, keep in mind, right? So this is really sure. early in the, in the space. At the time, many projects made the mistake that they would go down a proprietary route and a very monolithic route uh, in, in the architecture. And they really sure. wanted to, to avoid that. Uh, and they also believe that this correct by construction, right, which is Casper CBC, right, uh -huh. uh, which, which is an early, like an Ethereum research project, so to speak, or an, a research project that came out of the Ethereum community. Um, that had some technical merits and they wanted to implement, you know, this specific nice uh you know this specific philosophy with with a non-monolithic approach and with an approach that is more uh, common in software development right which is iterative which which relies on existing tools to test so at the time when they started they picked rust right uh, as as the basis to program as opposed to developing their own you know their own platform language. sure right? language which was a which was not a very popular choice. I mean, I would say Near was maybe another project that did that early on, and there were not that many projects, you know, that right. did that. Right. So, so they were early, and then of course this philosophy of an iterative approach, uh, you know, of existing, you know, development environments, IDEs, and uh, you know, testing environments that you could use. You don't have to wait, you know. <laughs> It's not a weakness that, that you know that you use existing infrastructure, you know, and 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 good <laughs> software development practices is actually a strength, right? So sure. that that was the philosophy. And today, the Casper ecosystem consists of, you know, many contributors, but two core entities. One is the Casper Association, on which board I am, with other, with two other board members. And the Casper Association will have members. And those members are validators, so it's going to be an association. It's not a foundation; it's an it's an association, which means that members will, you know, will basically rule the association. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that there's, you know, this is not with respect to the chain. It's just with respect to the association, which is kind of the steward of the open source development at this point. Got um, it. And then there's Casper Labs, which is a, uh, you know solution integrator and basically professional services company that also develops a large part currently of the of the core but uh, but also develops enterprise applications right for enterprises okay. with enterprises okay um 
okay, so kind of a unique approach, wanted to implement that kind of technological vision, um, pretty much ahead of the time in terms of saying, picking Rust, uh, I would say. Um, and obviously uh, allowing and opening the door to uh, a lot more development talent, right? Um, you don't have to learn something new that's more difficult to learn than the average um, development tools. Um, and you, I would assume that there's probably a bit less uh, risk in using Rust in terms of the security of the protocols that get created, um, which is typically the case uh, as opposed to Solidity. What, um, wh where, well, let's start here. Where, where does the product project stand right now um, in terms of the chain? And then how long has it been? I'm assuming mainnet's live mainnet, and all of that, yes, but tell yes. us tell us all about that if you could. Yeah, sure. So I think before we go into some of these details, I think it's also important for the audience to understand while we respect and personally, of course, I respect and I'm a big fan, you know, of Ethereum and 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 other environments. Um, you know, if we want these smart contracting platforms to really have an impact in the world. We need the millions of developers that can code Java, you know, and Rust and and uh, Python to get engaged in our space, right? We cannot, right. we can we cannot say, well, yeah, this project has a huge developer community. That huge developer community is is negligible in comparison to the rest of the developer universe, right? So right. we need to. We need to get, we need to find ways and engage, um, you know, and, 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 uh, and uh, how can I say that? And motiv motivate, right? Motivate much larger groups, much, much larger numbers to engage with this technology if we want to have an impact in the world, right? I mean, sure. this is just, uh, you know, TVL, again, the world runs on credit and, you know, look at the size of credit markets and look at the size of TVL. And you know, it's not even a conversation topic, right? Whether sure. this is relevant or not. So, sure. so we need to we need to think in different categories, and that's that's what we you know that's kind of like what unifies the people that are engaged in Casper, this this motivation, right? Of of um, of of enlarging the the community with beyond just the the, the crypto bubble, right? So, right. if you want to say. So where do we stand today? Yeah, mainnet has been live for a little bit over three years now. Two, two and a half. So now I'm uh, I'm, I'm I'm blurring here on the year, but uh, yeah. And um, and there are a number of enterprise applications on the chain right now. Okay. So we are we are quite proud uh, for the geeks among you. You could look at the, it's, it's, there's a project called IPWE, IPWE.com, IPWE, okay. IPWE.com, which is tokenizing um, or representing patents on chain, right? Oh, so nice. IP, IP rights, a very interesting, very interesting uh, use case, we believe. Um, there's a few other projects that, that cannot be disclosed, but so I would say we are, quite far down the road in terms of usability of the platform um you know there is work being done on an abstraction layer for smart contracting language so it should be easier to you know write smart contracts uh the association so casper association has recently released a developer portal uh which really guides people through 
early, uh, you know, through a few basic steps so they can engage with the technology. Our goal is, you know, you can build a smart contract within 30, uh, 30 uh, hours, uh, so 30 minutes, sorry. So within 30 wow. minutes, you can really, you can get started. So, um, so I would say in terms of maturity, we are well on the way uh, when we compare ourselves with some, some other smart contracting platforms, I think we have some tooling and some infrastructure that is a little bit better, but, you know, we are still struggling with scalability. Uh, that's, you know, that we need to work on. Uh, we, we are currently revising the next, the next release will address some of the database uh, size problems, fast thinking will be enabled, etc. So, you know, all aspects uh, that really will contribute to the, um, you know, to the ease of use and to rolling it out in, in, in different environments. I would say that our uh, roadmap, I mean, you can look at the roadmap on GitHub. It's all public, right? Right. Uh, the, the roadmap that we have for the next six to nine months is very substantial and will improve the environment uh, quite a bit and, and will, will allow a lot of people to develop and to build on the platform more easily and, and, and performant. Yeah, I mean, look, um, I, I think the this idea of of making it more accessible for people to create smart contracts and speeding that up is is fantastic. Are you, uh, you know, we we talked about it um, wanting to do something different than the existing monolithic systems that were being built. Is this is the approach to this that the functions within the system are very modular, and so then that's why something like these enterprise applications kind of were attracted and drawn to it because they get some of the, the capabilities and benefits of a blockchain, but they can also use things that they need as opposed to uh, navigating every function of the chain. Is that kind of the thinking? That's exactly what the thinking is. And I mean, we can give you some examples. Yeah. So one is, you know, we have this issue now with database size, you know, we, we, we recently uh, changed um, you know, just one component of that, of that database infrastructure, and we will change more. Uh, we are currently testing a new, uh, consensus algorithm and mechanism. We can just do that. Right. Um, sure. we will unify in the, in the next several, uh, releases at some point, uh, we will, um, unify the account and the contract model, which means that you can have self-executing contracts. Uh, you know, natively on chain, right? So sure. um, we have uh, uh, Casper has a weighted key model on the chain, as well as native to the chain, which means that you can benefit from it, you know, from the security of the chain when you are making certain uh, business logic decisions. Uh, and you can make those mutable or immutable. It's your choice, right? So wow. it's another interesting, it's another, it's another idea, right? So the past, of course, we agree should be immutable. But the future, you know, can be mutable, right? So this is what we call smart uh, upgrade, um, upgradable smart contracts, right? You have the opportunity to build um, with this weighted key, weighted key environments, uh, build infrastructure that you can change, just like what you're used to in in, in existing environments. And this is right. not just enterprises, but it's any software development environment, sure. right? Any project, you know. Um, well, Someone, one of the things I often yeah. talk about is, is that uh, in the Solidity world, iterating as a startup is incredibly difficult, right? I mean, there are just too many, too many things that can go wrong and too much difficulty in changing what you already have. So that's actually, um, that's really interesting to hear that you yeah. all are, are taking yeah, People that leave. I mean, what are you going to do with the key of someone who left, right? I right. Mean, are you, 
you know, when you change the contract and you have to move it, I mean, are you still sure that it's not still execute? I mean, this is one of the big problems, right? Are you sure right. that it's not still executing, you know, for some, for some people that are addressing it, etc. So this is, you know, this is just good practice. Iterative agile development requires uh, in such infrastructure. And we believe that we have a pretty strong position proposition for the market. Yeah, that's great. So I look, I could, I could see, you know, Solidity developers listening to this right now saying, wow, this sounds really attractive. This gives me more capability, more float, more, more functionality, more flexibility. Um, from your perspective, when, when you all are thinking about kind of the future for Casper and generating users and generating developers for, for it, um, what, what are your approaches going forward kind of strategically to gain more market share, to bring in these other developers we've been talking about? Um, are you, are you, are you taking an approach of, hey, we want a lot of DeFi type applications? Are you taking an approach of, hey, we're really targeting enterprise first and foremost, kind of what's, what's the thought process for how you're going to gain developers and users? Uh, cool, yeah, yeah, that's, well, first of all, of course, we want more DeFi primitives and we want more DeFi infrastructure. So we have two, two hearts, right? I have two hearts, right? So <laughs> we have the heart of the, you know, we have the heart for the community, for the people that really want to build something that is independent from, you know, corporate BS, if you want to call it. And, you know, I mean, they really want to contribute to, to great technology, right? So right. we want to be, we want to be a home for, for, for these people too. We, we don't just want to be a home for people that, you know, need the public option for, uh, you know, for hyperledger. That's not what we want to be. Right. So right. We, we want to be, we want to be on both sides. Um, and it's important that, that we are on both sides because innovation comes from the forward looking, from the pressing, you know, from the technically committed people. Um, uh, but at the same time you have someone, you have to have someone who, that's using it as well. So this is why we also right. need, we also need people that are building real business, you know, real businesses and real business logic and use cases, be this in an enterprise or, you know, or just for a project and a startup. Right. So right. this is, this is really important. Um, and, and the other aspect is when you think back, we take a lot of cues from the Linux and the red, red hat model, right? Linux and red hat. Right. So right. how, why was Linux so successful? Because everybody was waiting for Linux because everybody knew there was a big problem. And then you had, you know, hundreds, thousands of people contribute to this, to this code base. Um, right. And, and at some point there was a tipping point because, you know, these people that had contributed could suddenly make a lot of money in enterprise environments that also realized that this was solving some of their critical environments and problems. Right. So, sure. So this is really, um, I think this is this is the same for for the space that we are in. That's really interesting. So um, understanding that uh, people who gain the skills and understand how this works, that when you reach kind of a critical uh, demand um, in the enterprise space, um, you'll have a group of folks who have created projects who can be um, similar to the Red Hats and or professional services models. Um, that we see in other industries today, right? So um, with the idea that it can serve both, it can serve kind of the general uh, consumer, retail, whomever um, that wants more options with, uh, with the internet and with, with blockchain and with, with finance, 
but also can be something that people have gained skills and they can now serve large enterprises or um, other entities. Yeah, that's really, uh, that's really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Do from, from the perspective of you all, I, I have to believe that it's um, after, after building this for four years, seeing kind of this flood of me too blockchains in the space. Um, and, and this isn't critical of Casper at all. It's just no, kind no. of like this mess of things that are being dumped under the space that don't really have any differentiators or value proposition. Um, I, I have to imagine it must be a little frustrating to kind of have this crowd of things happening while you all have uh, labored for four years trying to create something superior to, to what's there, right? Um, is that something that you all have kind of struggled with and then, um, or have you just kind of said, no, we're just gonna persevere and build through this and we're gonna do it. Um, and do you find right now kind of at the stage where you are, where it's maturing and you're kind of ready to go to the world in terms of what you have, um, that it's kind of difficult to get that attention, so. Look, I think, um... That's a really interesting question. I think obviously a rising tide, you know, lifts all the boats. True, right? absolutely. So, so, so we need, and this is complex technology. This has many aspects, um, you know, critical components for the next few years, which are, you know, around zero knowledge proofs and zero knowledge virtual machines, which are, which are essential really for scaling and for layer two, you know, for layer two solutions. And for quite frankly, for our privacy, right? We don't want to live in sure. a dystopian. We don't, we don't want to live in a dystopian world where everything is available on a chain, uh, you know, in some form or fashion. <laughs> That's really not what we want to do, right? So exactly. So so the, so there is there is a need for this massive amount of resources that needs to be spent. Of course, I wished that these resources wouldn't be spent on the same things that four years ago people tried to build on ethereum and didn't work right so right. you know that is kind of frustrating when you see some of these highly capitalized projects um deploy you know millions of dollars for certain use cases and you're like yeah but we remember you know well i, I just pick akasha or whatever you know i mean you know we remember that was you know that was already tried and the, right. the reasons why it didn't work right so maybe you should really study that and not and not hire an auto set of 22 year old programmers you know that that are that are developing this after and, and give up after six months because they can't agree on anything you know but the point is i think that this is a bit of the challenge right and right. i wished personally i wished that of course venture capitalists would play a better role than what they have played a more constructive role than what they have played in the space right so sure any anybody can have their own opinions about what happened um and what regulatory action would or would not be appropriate with respect to certain project sales and and you know and, and investment practices um you know i mean who else is going to give guidance to these projects right it's right. certainly it it cannot be. I mean, it, developer-led firms typically are not necessarily successful, right? So, right. Th this is a problem, right? So you cannot <clears throat> you cannot have um, highly intelligent, socially dysfunctional people run organizations that have, you know, that have a lot of money because it's not it's not necessarily a recipe for success, right? So, That's so true. 
so this is this is I guess this is a very general answer, but I mean that. But, and no, maybe look, that's I think there's the a, of technology innovation. I don't know, but that's well, look, it's it's kind of the normal path, right? We we, we look. Obviously, I agree with you. The VCs needed or need to take a more responsible approach, and I think interestingly enough, they all are because they now feel like they should have in the first place, right? But um, the incentives for them were, you know, instead of a five to ten year uh, yes. window for their investment returns, it's a three to five month return. Exactly. Um, exactly. So it's really difficult to get people to step away from that yes. to say, no, 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 guys, let's do this the right way, right? Now yeah. there are people in the space that have always taken that approach and thankfully yes. they're there. Um, but I think the market's correcting for that. And I think it's correcting for the mindset to some extent. It, it'll it always come back. Don't get me wrong. There'll always yeah. be that component of it. But yeah. um, I think you're absolutely right that it would have been very helpful um, along the way for us to have had some, some guidance, some adult supervision um, yes. that uh, from people, from people who have already been through the pain and suffering of launching startups and tech and finance, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it's not difficult. So um, I definitely agree with you. I think, um, I think we're kind of hitting that stage now where I think we'll see more of that. Um, and um, I, I definitely, it makes sense. Um, when, when you all approach, when you all are approaching developers today, um, what, what kind of, when you're talking to people that already know Rust or other already know other programming languages, are you finding that in the space that people are well informed? Is it a mix of people that are understand blockchain but haven't touched it, and people who are adamantly against anything that's got any connotation of crypto? Kind of what are you running into as you go out to talk to developers about joining and building something on Casper? Yeah, no, we. That's a really good point, right? So we. We see a lot of people that believe in the power of distributed ledger technology, right? Right. I mean, it's so powerful. Right? So, you know, they understand the economics with, with the trust. I mean, they have a similar, some of these people have a similar, what I laid out in the beginning, right? So this reduction of trust and this cost of trust, I mean, it solves fundamental problems. And then you have sure. a decentralized system which solves yet another set of problems, right? So right. central point of failure. I mean, all the things that, that programmers and developers have faced, uh, you know, in their, in their uh, lifetime and in their, in their, in their projects. Um, we see people, specifically those that have contributed to some open source projects early in their careers, they are more open, right? Mm, but they are they are disappointed by the froth, you know, to use like a slightly loaded term, you know, of course by the rock pools. You know, I mean, if you if you're sure. like a if you're an experienced programmer and you come to this space and you know and you and you see Pepe coins and Shiba Inus and you know, I mean, you're like, I can't do it. Why I can't? You know, you, right. you guys are right. great. I'm not gonna spend my time here. So. This is a challenge, right? Um, sure. So we need to convince them to still consider the serious players, uh, not that's the wrong word, but to, to convince serious technology approaches, right? There's many serious players, but you know, look for the technology approach, try to find a home for that. Um, quite frankly, you know, and unfortunately many projects struggle in attracting talent because of this additional hurdle of a proprietary language. I think they rec I, I think most of them recognize that. Sure. So uh, I don't think that's, that's, that's a secret. 
Um, and so the question really is, when is the tipping point coming and when are the first narrow products launched, available, you know, and we can verticalize the approach of some of these, of some of these solutions? Well, then you can grow, right? From a beachhead right. and, and, and the grow. So, so I think that's the, that's the question that everybody's waiting for. And I don't have a good answer. Uh, otherwise, you know, we would be number one already if we had the answer. Uh, from a market capitalization point of view, but I think, yeah, is it the iPhone moment? Is it an app store moment? Is it, uh, you know, is it some layer two solution with anonymity that is getting people over the hump when they, you know, I don't know, is it, uh, is it, um, coupons? Is it, uh, you know, is it reward? I don't know. I have no idea what the first use case is. I don't think anybody is. I don't think anybody does. But I, what's interesting to me is, um, uh, you know, when we started the conversation or before we got on the, the, the actual recording, one of the things you talked about and you've touched on briefly through throughout the, the um, interview is the fact that um, what we have in what we refer to as DeFi today is not kind of there yet. Right, and, and we don't really have uh, that. It's primarily based based on lending protocols, um, and that it's not actually what the finance world is expecting. And I'm wondering if, for you all, um, kind of already seeing that, um, if that kind of helps you. And I realize, look, it's it's an open project, and people are going to come build whatever they want to build that they think fits the model. But is there a is there a place where you all could actually start steering towards kind of those, some of those philosophical things that you think are missing in the world of DeFi with understanding that that's a massive, I mean, you're talking about massively, massively larger sums of, of finance and in, investing in money than what exists today in, in all of the protocols on, on yeah, DeFi. Well, okay. So yeah, we, when we spoke, right. So really the difference between DeFi and TradFi and not the commonality between DeFi and TradFi is finance. It's finance, right? And at the moment, you know, DeFi is mostly over collateralized lending, and that is that is a niche application in the real world, right? There's not a lot right. of over collateralized lending. Uh, some could argue, some listeners will say, well, mortgages are over collateralized. That's true, but that's kind of like it still relies on your cash flow, right? That yes, it is over, but still, you're you're committing anyone who's taking a mortgage out commits to a lot of cash flows as well. Right. Right. So right. Not necessarily as simple as that. Um, and there's unlikely there is a margin call, right? So, I mean, this is a, in a mortgage environment. So in a normal mortgage environment. So, right. um, yeah, so we, we think, look, I mean, so on the finance side, we, as I said before, we're building on this algorithmic, uh, financial standard, this open source algorithmic financial standard. And we believe that is also an answer or an interesting option for DeFi uh, applications. And, and hopefully we can prove that soon. I mean, we're with traditional players, we are now working on tokenization of um, options. Uh, nice. and, 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 you know, so we're going to have, we're going to have a working prototype for tokenization of options. There's no reason why this could not also be in a DeFi environment. It doesn't have sure. to be centralized, right? This can also live in DeFi environments. Um, so there, I think we have a we have a very deep understanding of what we think is going to work and is required. So 
Um, but hey, but you know, Cardano does as well. They agree with us that the standard is the way forward, and they've included the standard in their Marlowe, uh, in their Marlowe, uh, you know, in their Marlowe setup. Um, and uh, this act is standard. And you know, and then the question is, can we can we provide more useful and better developer tools and primitives so that people start, you know, building on Casper in the DeFi in DeFi as well. So that's right. up to us, right? We have to right. show the way. Sure. Bit, yeah. So. How um I, I noticed you have a pretty decently sized team there. Um and and uh, it looks like a lot of a lot of experience and skills uh on the team. In terms of kind of the community that are that are working on projects is that growing for you do you feel uh good about where you are and how how that's happening now yeah so i think we have a decent sized community we have a we have a pretty good uh, you know interaction for devs on discord so we have uh i think we have nice. still over 30,000 or 35,000 wow. participants on this on, on discord so it's quite wow we have people 24 hours manned you know that to answer technical questions so this nice. is, all, is all there um then um you know we have a fairly large telegram you know following and we have a fairly large twitter following um but of course we would like more devs to contribute to the core that's sure. our that's our goal and that's you know we have taken some steps including you know the dev portal then we have um the casper association itself has a grant uh, program which gives small grants okay so people need to know we have small grants but we still give grants as opposed to other chains which no longer give any grants that's right so we we still give grants uh for specific uh building specifically on casper and uh, ideally smaller applications because we also don't want to have the risk of you know very complex projects over a longer period of time which is very difficult to manage both for the teams themselves as well as for us Sure. So, um, and then what we will have is we will have, uh, we haven't rolled that out yet. Next program is some uh, dev rewards where we, where we pro, you know, where we will pose specific problems to the community, very yeah. simple ones that then can be solved um, and contributed to the core or to the existing environments. Uh, and we are also making visible what is being built. So there's a, there's a Casper ecosystem page where you can see what is being built, uh, very neutral. I mean, we don't take any sites, you know, if you meet some minimum requirements, you can basically just promote your project. Nice. Very nice. All right. So, um, two more questions. First is, um, is there anything else we haven't covered about Casper that you think we should, uh, make sure we hit upon? Um, I guess people need to go to casper.network if they want to check it out. Is that the first place to start? That's correct. Yes. Great. Um, and I'll post that in the, in the show notes, but, um, is there anything else you think, um, that, that, uh, I've missed asking you about so Casper far? Related? No, I think we've explored quite a bit. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Um, okay. So my last question I ask, well, I have two questions I ask. I'm going to ask them for you. This will be interesting. Um, the first is, um, are there, um, in the in the existing crypto space and the existing DeFi, whatever blockchain DLT space, um, who is someone uh, that you think has been um, incredibly important or that you have just unbelievable uh, respect for? Um, and, you know, it could be the standard ones that some people say, but it'll also be, um, I think, kind of um, your your 
your Genesis story into crypto is very interesting to me. Anyway, folks that you uh, have a lot of respect for that you think are incredibly important, uh, past or future for, for where we're headed. Well, I, I really think that probably one of the most important contributions um, is the definition of what a smart contract is by Nick Sabo. Right. Nah, sure. nice. Uh, nice. It's it's really. I think if people here don't know what it is, I will say it now because it's really critical to understand. Right? What is That's a smart great. contract? Right? The smart contract has four characteristics. Right? It allows for observability, for verifiability, and these first two conditions enable enforceability of what you know of what was basically coded. And then the last condition he had was privity, right? Which is kind of privacy, right? So you you have an option of, of you know, not showing or or hiding what what or I don't know uh, or wailing what 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 was done in, in this you know in this transactions. And, and and people forget what this is really critical, right? It's not. Um, and Vitalik would say, by the way, and I, I've written about this too, right? Vitalik, specifically in the context of finance. Vitalik would say that you know the, the traditional definition of what a smart contract is is not a it's need, no it's neither a contract nor is it smart <laughs> you know I think he called it script right he said yeah right. I would better I would have better have wish I had changed it. the name doesn't I, mean, I wish name. I would have called it script or something yeah. right so, right. so this is why I think it's important when we talk about smart contracts to really think about Nick Sabo's definition of of what what makes a smart contract really a smart contract which is these four. That's great. And that, that's aspects. a great contribution to recognize. It's funny because, um, look, I think there are plenty of people in the space that, that know about Nick, but I think there's an entire, the word's not generation, an, an entire set mm. of users that don't know how much work was put in by people, you know, back then to set the standards that yes. we actually are building upon today. And that's, uh, that's really interesting. I love that. That's great. All right. So the, usually the next question I ask, um, to, to founders, but I think it'll be interesting for you because you have such a varied background. Um, having uh, been someone who's been worked in startups, who has built in this space, um, who's been an investor, um, the, the question I often ask is, is, uh, are, is there a lesson or lessons that, you, that if you could pass on to kind of every founder in the crypto space or say every founder joining Casper, uh, is there something you would make sure that, you know, everybody knew? It's a tough question. <laughs> it's much more difficult than the one before. Uh, you're gonna have, have to cut. You're gonna have to cut the length of the pause. Thing, that's fine. Yeah, yeah I mean, are there things that you learned and mistakes you made that uh, that you'd hate to see somebody else repeat, or um, assumptions you made, or? So I really like roadmaps, right? I keep mm. asking for roadmaps. Um, because it's not it's it's about not just your idea or your code base at the moment, but it's about how it will it evolve and what are you doing for it to evolve and and I think that is an under an undermanaged and an undervalued um, capability to produce a consistent and a coherent roadmap. You know, of course, it's software development, so it's difficult to adhere to the very details that you're laying out, right? But right. You, should, you should have a, a fairly comprehensive vision of what ultimately, you know, this should look like. I would beware of uh, asking for a customer. I, I understand that that's, of course, 
really important, but you know, if you just ask a customer, you're not necessarily getting the innovation or that a distributed ledger technology and the shared ledger can bring, right? Because they right. cannot conceive of what it should look like. So a mix between this, this visionary approach and the solid roadmap that can be implemented, you know, and then hopefully finding some customers that actually invest with you along the way, that would be, you know, that would be the, the ideal situation. I love that. And, and, and actually there's so much truth to the roadmap thing. It's funny, even founders I talk to now in crypto, I'll say, well, have you thought about writing a business plan? And, and they'll say, well, this is crypto. We don't have to write a business plan. And I'll say, well, you know, maybe you want some revenue, maybe, you know, whatever. Um, but what the reason I tell them to write a business plan is not to, to fit the old investor model or anything else. It's because the process of doing that, just like the process of building a roadmap forces you to think about where you're going and what you might run into getting there. Right. Yes. And so from that perspective, I think that's an awesome piece of advice because, um, having a direction, um, makes total sense. Not to mention it's great because you want your community to know, you want, yeah. you know, people to know where you're planning to go. Right. So that's so, and, the, and the other, maybe the other aspect is, uh, it's really mundane. I have a hard time uh, writing good slides. So <laughs> because you know, that's the key, that's a key skill, right? If you really want to bring your ideas across, you should be able to write good slides, you know, yep. draw good slides. Yeah. I'm actually, um, I've taught a lot of folks, um, uh, presentations and skills and oh that's uh, true i that. saw that yeah it's cool. and yeah. uh when i start doing it myself which i'm in the middle of revamping a, a deck right now um it's really painful to realize that you're uh really bad at it when you're doing it yourself as opposed to mm -hmm. teaching other people how to do it so yes. yeah absolutely great piece of advice ralph i've really enjoyed this conversation uh, uh it makes me want to take a deeper dive into casper and and what you all are doing I, I love the ethics and ethos and the approach that you're taking to it. And uh, I hope I hope things go really well for you as you guys move forward from here. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Ralph. Appreciate it.